Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, October the 13th, 2022. Uh, books about Jewish banking families are like London buses. You wait, you wait, you wait. They don't come. And then you get three of them all at once. The first one um, was on the uh, the Morgenthau's. Uh, we did a show with Andrew Mayer, a very, um, a very important new book, a significant book, a thousand page book by the distinguished journalist. It's getting great reviews. There's also a book on the Sassoons, um, which I think we're going to do an interview with uh, the family of uh, the Sassoons, the banking family known as the Rothschilds of the East, the book by Joseph Sassoon called The Sassoons, The Great Global Merchants and the Making of an Empire. And the third book um, is on uh, 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 the Safras, or at least Edmund J. Safra, A Banker's Journey, a book about the great uh, Lebanese, uh, Middle Eastern banker, Edmund J. Safra, by my guest today, uh, Daniel Gross. Daniel, welcome. He's joining us from his home in Connecticut. Uh, Daniel, uh, was it just coincidence that there were these three books on Jewish bankers all at the same time, the Roth, uh, the, uh, the Morgenthau's, the Sassoon's, and the Safra's? I think it was a coincidence. And there's a fourth book called The Last Jewish Kings of Shanghai, which is also about the Sassoons by a, a different author that came out about three years ago that traces their journey from Baghdad to Bombay to Hong Kong. And Edmund Safra, who I write about in this book, uh, had his family had connections to the Rothschilds. Um, I've seen their correspondence going back to the 20s and the 30s, and they had connections to the Sassoons as well. The Maya book, uh, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with it, um, Dan, really focuses on the the, pub, the the commitment to the the public sphere, to the public ethic of public service. What is it about um, Safra that drew you to this project? You're a, a much published financial journalist. Why have you dedicated so much of your time to a book about uh, Edmund Safra? There are a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, thank you for, for noting. I, I've, I've done a bunch of books about the economy and sort of think books. This is really the first biography I've done. And there are a few things. Um, Edmund Safra is a kind of signal figure in both 20th century financial history. He founded uh, four banks on three different continents. He was born into a banking family, but he also you know, built up a you know, multi-billion dollar fortune on his own with a particular style of banking through the 90s until his death in 1999. And as important, and maybe even perhaps more important, he was an iconic figure for the uh, Syrian and Lebanese Jewish community. Um, and myself, my mother uh, is a, her, her family, our family comes from Syria. My great grandparents came from Aleppo. Aleppo is a storied Jewish community that you know, dates its presence back to the third century AD, largely destroyed now. Uh, but Edmund Safra was a, a Halabi, an, an Aleppin. And so, <clears throat> This combination to me of, of someone who's interested in financial history and someone who was also a Syrian Jew who traces his ancestry to, Lebanon, uh, to uh, Aleppo and saw the kind of displacement, the tragedy this community suffered, and in many instances, the triumphs it achieved. Um, 
Edmund Safra was this figure who, in the absence of an organized community, people from Aleppo were displaced and the Beirut Jewish community was displaced, functioned as a kind of one-man uh, community council and support group. So in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, wherever people were regrouping, in Brazil, New York, Panama, Europe, he would support them in building a synagogue, literally helping ransom the last 4,000 Jews out of Syria in 1994. I write that he's a kind of a combination of a Rothschild, a Warren Buffett, because his, his the, the stocks of his banks, which were public, had 25% annual returns over 25-year periods. And he was kind of an Oscar Schindler as well. The archives that I was given uh, access to are replete with letters from people, from rabbis in, in Syria in the 70s, people in the 60s saying, I got to get out of Beirut. Can you get me a job? Can you help me? Can you help my family get resettled? And he did this on a personal basis and then on an institutional basis for much of, of his life. So that combination of um, being a very interesting an important player in global finance in 20th century, and the meaning he had to this community of which I am a part made this a very compelling um, opportunity for me. Dan, the, um, the the Jerusalem Post review of your book, or piece of, of an interview with you, presents him as a, a proud Sephardi Jew um, who built a global financial empire. Is there a rivalry between Sephardic Jews like Safra and Ashkenazi Jews like the Morgenthaus, in cultural terms, do they? Did, did Safra think of himself as a as a Sephardic Jew? I mean, clearly he was from uh, Aleppo, and he had that Syrian and Lebanese heritage. Very was much so. The significance yeah. of the Sephardi quality, and perhaps you might explain for some people in our audience who aren't familiar with the difference between. A sure. Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jew. Sephardic refers to Jews who came from Morocco, North Africa, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, even Greece and Bulgaria. Um, and at one level, the Jews in Iran and Jews in Morocco have nothing to do with each other. They speak different languages, have different histories, etc. But they tend to be kind of, you know, lumped together as opposed to the Ashkenazi Jews who were in Europe. Um, <clears throat> Edmund Safra was born into... Uh, a series of networks. There was the network of the Aleppo Jews, right? They were from Syria, but his father, who was a banker, had moved to Beirut in 1920 and set up his own bank there. But they were, you know, already in the 20s and 30s, there were, you know, a few um, Jews from Aleppo in Hong Kong and the Philippines and Japan, a big community in New York that you were connected to. He was connected to this smaller Beirut Jewish community. Uh, the schools they went to, there was an organization of schools called the Alliance, which was founded by uh, French uh, Jewish philanthropists in the 1860s. And what they did is built French language schools for Jewish kids, again, from Morocco all the way to Iran. They would train teachers in Paris and send them so that these people could get both a secular and Jewish education. And that was a network he was born into that had a real Sephardic identity. And then after Israel is formed, um, and a lot of Jews are brought in from Yemen and Iraq and Iran, where they were often discriminated against, treated as second-class citizens, um, there was more of a Sephardic identity in saying, wait a second, we're not the establishment here. Something has to be done for this group of people. And so Edmund Safra was, you know, at first a champion of Syrian and Beiruti Jews. And as he grew and grew into his role and grew into his fortune, uh, applied his philanthropy to Sephardic Jews more generally. So if Egyptian Jews were having some problems trying to preserve a cemetery in Egypt, 
they would go to him. If there was a, a, a small synagogue in the island of Rhodes that needed someone, to, uh, a cantor every for high holidays, he would write a check for them to go there. And in Israel in the 70s, where you know, Sephardic Jews, maybe only 2% uh, were going to college, he started a foundation to encourage um, you know, and, and endow scholarships for, broadly speaking, Sephardic Jews um, to uh, attend college. So if you asked him, he wouldn't say my primarily identity is as a Sephardic Jew. It's I'm a Halabi. I'm, I'm an Aleppin. I'm a Beiruti. And then it was this sort of larger community uh, that he grew into um, where he had the self-identification. And, you know, as far as like a rivalry with sort of Ashkenazi Jews, you know, I think Edmund Safford in his lifetime, he, he went from uh, Beirut to Milan to Brazil to Switzerland to New York and everywhere he was something of an outsider. And especially in the U.S. where, you know, the, the community is overwhelmingly Jews from Europe, a very small number, he did feel like an outsider and did feel like, you know, not that they were out to get him, but he felt like more comfortable with the people who were from his own world. Um, but the Rothschilds, of course, he was close to them in 1972. Uh, his bank went public, his Swiss bank went public on the London Stock Exchange. It was the largest uh, public offering at that time in the post-war era. And N.M. Rothschild was the bank that took it public. And at the uh, press conference, one of the Rothschilds stood up and said, you know, we know you. Our fathers knew your fathers. Our grandfathers knew your grandfathers. They were trading gold with each other in the 20s and the 30s. So it was less a rivalry and more um, collegial at that level. We haven't done anything on the Jews of Lebanon or Syria, but we've done a lot of shows about the politics, the complicated, tragic politics of the Middle East, particularly since 1979. One with the Lebanese journalist, Kim Hattas, called Black Wave. Yes. Uh, another with a Palestinian, a displaced Palestinian writer, Hala Alian, has a book out called The Arsonist City. Many shows about Israel and the problem of Palestine and the whole issue of land there. With Safra, the way you've presented Safra so far was, did he only see the world in Jewish terms? Did he only care about Sephardic Jews? Did he commit money know. and time to the suffering of non-Jews in the Middle East? He um, was a man who had, you would say, several identities. He had Brazilian citizenship. He was a resident in Geneva. He had a home in Monaco. He had a huge bank in New York, but only would spend a few months a year, a year there. But the, the identity he clung most fiercely to was that of a Lebanese, of a Beiruti. So he was born in Beirut in 1932. Um, I had access to his family and corporate and personal archives, which is full of these wonderful letters um, and communications from the 1940s, 1950s in Beirut, which was a, a special place. Um, the you know, political settlement that had been worked out was one in the, in the 40s that incorporated the Sunnis, Shiites, Maronites, Druze. Uh, there was a great, a greater, much greater sense of coexistence. Right. Um, I mean, uh, let, me, let me jump in here, Dan. I, 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 this is an extremely idealized version of, of Lebanon, but go on. I mean, there certainly yeah, well, look, uh, in the 40s, I agree strongly with that. I mean, it was still a, a country dominated by certain sects. Yes, but you know, in the 40s and the 50s, the, the line of one historian of Lebanon, it was a place that put deals before ideals, right? The, the commerce that was going on there, it was it was sort of integrated uh, into Europe. A lot of the money from the Gulf came there. Um, when they had uh, at their Passover every year, the Jewish quarter, thousands of people would come out, and the 
religious leaders and the political leaders of Lebanon would come out and participate. This is going into the 50s. Uh, Lebanon was the only country uh, in the Middle East whose Jewish population actually increased after 1947 because so many Jews fled from Syria and stayed in Beirut. It was hospitable to them through the 50s um, in the in the 60s in a way that Egypt and Iraq and Syria were not. Um, but he clung very fiercely to his uh, Lebanese identity. He named his, when he had a yacht in the Mediterranean, he called it Ale. Ale was the mountain resort uh, outside Beirut um, where they would go in the summer. His father had founded a bank in Beirut in 1920. It was called Bank Jacob Safra. They changed its name to Bank Credit, uh, Bank to Credit National, BCN, in the 50s. He refused to sell it. Even as he left Beirut, through the Civil War in the 70s, through the Israeli invasion of the 80s, he held on to this tiny bank that his father had owned, and he owned it at his death in the 1990s. Um, there are plenty of documents of him being a, a, a supporter of the American University in Beirut, giving lots of money to the um, Red Crescent. Uh, so he clung very fiercely uh, to well, his... Well, well, how, how was he perceived in Lebanon, particularly within the Shiite community? Um, I mean, presumably, in Lebanon, everyone has friends and everyone has enemies. Presumably, not everybody loved Edmund Safra. Now, I would imagine that not everybody did. Um, he, one of the interesting things is that he, for you know, through the sixties and the seventies, because a lot of his business was in Beirut, and because he was doing a lot of business with people in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and Syria, and because there were blacklists. He avoided, he didn't make investments in Israel, for example. I mean, he would donate money uh, to charitable organizations, but he would not be publicly identified uh, in the 60s and 70s um, with doing business. He didn't invest in any banking entities in Israel. He didn't want to have public uh, investments in Israel precisely because he wanted to preserve uh, the viability of the business he had in um Beirut and also in Syria and in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. So again, he felt himself connected to that world in a business way, um, you know, for much of his life, even after he had ceased to ceased to live there in the fifties and sixties, uh, and even early into the early seventies. He was in Beirut for business quite frequently. Was he a Zionist? Um, you know, it's yes, of course he was. Yes, so. I think the thing you have to realize, he was born in 1932, and this was, you know, the, the sort of, if you grew up in Damascus or Aleppo in the Ottoman era, that there was something of a, it wasn't quite an integrated whole, but you could travel freely to Jerusalem. There were Syrian rabbinic dynasties who were in Jerusalem. There were Syrian yeshivas in Jerusalem that his family was supporting, again, before the state of Israel. Um, the Jewish community in uh, Beirut was a little more low-key when Israel's founding. You know, there, there was an armistice quite uh, with Lebanon, and there was a kind of, you know, tenuous existence there for a while. Um, he would support, uh, again, I have the documentation, uh, support charitable organizations, resettlement efforts in Israel in the 50s and 60s, but usually quietly. He uh, met and knew Israeli politicians, and it was later in his career in the 80s, and 90s when he began to more publicly identify go to he, the first time he visited israel um was in 1981 he had 
built a synagogue for his former rabbi from Beirut who had fled That's there. astonishing. I mean, so he was born in 32. He was born in Lebanon. He spent most of his life in the Middle East. And the first time he ever went to Israel was in 1981. Well, I should say the, the opening scene of the book is in 1947, where as a 15-year-old, his father dispatches him to Milan to go start trading and do business. And the way you got from Beirut to Milan was um, he drove to Lode Airfield, which is now where, you know, Ben-Gurion uh, uh, Airport is outside of Tel Aviv. So he drove there. This was the fall of 1947 and flew from there to Rome. Uh, so that was then Israel, although the, the country had not yet been declared. So he was in Palestine. He was in that area in 47, but did not go to Israel for the first time until uh, 1981. What was the family's relationship with um, with the the Ottoman Empire. I mean, obviously that broken up by 1932. But was it a family that was very well connected within uh, Istanbul or Constantinople? I don't think they were well connected within the uh, the government <coughs> or the the sultans. They were not at that level. But they were very much a product of the Ottoman Empire. So. The Safras first come onto the scene as far as documentation in the 1860s, 1870s. They're a merchant family of, you know, money changers and lenders in Aleppo. Aleppo was one of the stops on the Silk Road mm -hmm. until the railroads came through. It was a very important node in commerce and I think the third largest city in the Ottoman Empire. And in the 1870s, <laughs> 1880s, there were four Safra brothers. Um, one was sent to Istanbul. One went to Alexandria. One went to Beirut and one went to Aleppo. Those were the kind mm. of crucial uh, nodes in the Ottoman, you know, kind of commercial network. And, you know, kind of like the Rothschilds did in Europe, they sent one brother to each place. And of course, 1914, after World War One, when the Ottoman Empire um, falls apart and then you have you know, British mandate and French mandate, et cetera, the logic of having a kind of interconnected family with poor people in those places you know, exist no more. And so the that partnership, which was called Sasha, uh, Safra Frere, uh, Safra Brothers in French, dissolves in the 19-teens, and they kind of go their, their own way. What relations did Safra have, if any, with the Assad family um, in, in, in Syria, given that they'd been in power for a long time? Um, yeah. I assume that he would have had to have had relations with them. Uh, was there... Um, did he do much business uh, after Assad Senior came to power? No, they, so they really didn't do much business in Syria. So he, you know, his father had left Aleppo for Beirut in 1920. In 1947, 1948, there are pogroms, and basically a lot of people leave and flee. <laughs> there are several thousand people who are either decide to stay and who are ultimately trapped, kind of hanging on in Aleppo and Damascus. Um, he was supporting those communities directly. I have lots of letters from the 70s going into the 80s of um, documentation of Edmund, you know, sending money and supplies and moral support to the communities that are hanging on in Aleppo. <coughs> the <coughs> ultimately, you know, at some point in the late 80s, I believe Syria is effectively um, occupying Lebanon. So, in order to kind of maintain the business and allow people from Lebanon, who ran the, that his that small bank that he had to travel to Switzerland to meet him. I found some correspondence between his bank 
and the Syrian consulate in um, Switzerland. So there was a relationship at that level, but it was more of a formality. And as I said, the, you know, the Jewish presence effectively ends in Syria in 1993, 1994. There was this moment when Assad joined Bush's uh, coalition to oust Saddam from Kuwait, and they're applying pressure. There was some talk of even the Israelis and the Syrians talking to each other, um, and they eventually prevailed upon Assad to let the remaining 4,000 Jews leave if they wanted to. (coughs) And his conceit was, okay, well, I'll let them leave, but, you know, they all have to buy round-trip plane tickets. Because they're, you know, they're all. I'm going to tell the Syrians they're all coming back, and uh, basically the community that called Edmund Safford and he basically paid for the four thousand um, return round trip plane tickets. And of course, people used them, but they only used them one way and left. And that was kind of the end of the uh, Syrian community in Damascus and Aleppo, and the end of any connection with the Syrian government. The end entirely of that world. Uh, Daniel, you refer to him as building a a global financial empire. You talk about him as the greatest banker of his generation. What does it mean to be a great banker? He inherited the bank, or he was one of the sons. His father started the business. So firstly, I mean, what what is even a great banker? What does that mean? And, And why is he really the greatest banker of his generation, given that there are many other great bankers or at least successful bankers in the world. Yeah, I would say a few things. First, uh, it was uh, James Wolfenson, um, former, I believe, the head of the World Bank, whose you know, quote that was that he was the, the greatest banker of his generation. But you use that quote in your, your website. Yes, yes, and, and I, I endorse it. Secondly, having covered the financial crisis and the savings and loan, you know, in the U.S., yeah. it's hard to You've actually think of a lot like of great bankers. And uh, yeah. dumb money and... Yeah. Better, stronger, faster. So you're familiar with the flimsy financial. I, I interviewed economy. a lot of these people, and there are there are a lot of not so great bankers, and especially the you know the people who ran um, the the some of the largest financial institutions in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s and the aughts did not exactly distinguish themselves. A lot of these banks went went bankrupt and had to have bailouts. Um, we haven't talked that much about his career. So the, the bank he had in Beirut that his father had was you know tiny and remained tiny. He started um, a bank in 1959 called Trade Development Bank uh, in Geneva, which he built from nothing, from a startup with his own capital, sold that in 1982 for 500 million. He started Republic Bank, which is, a, again, a startup bank in New York with $10 million of capital, mostly his own in 1965. Um, that grew into the 11th largest bank in the United States, again, mostly organically with some acquisitions. Uh, he started a second private bank in 1988 in Switzerland called Saffer Republic. Um, those His banks as publicly held companies, their stocks returned 25% a year compounded. Those are Buffett-like returns on single stocks. He set up his brothers in a bank in Brazil, which emerged into Banco Safra, which his brothers ran and continued to run after his, after his death, which itself emerged as one of the largest uh, financial institutions in Brazil. These banks were connected. They were integrated in, in, in certain ways. And he had a totally differential view of banking from people in the U.S. He didn't believe in deposit insurance because there was no deposit insurance in Beirut. He believed that his job was to protect the depositors first and to lend money second. And he didn't like his banks in the U.S. didn't really make consumer loans. They didn't make mortgages. They didn't dabble in credit cards. 
he would take the depositors of people in you know middle class neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and he would make loans to the Venezuelan central bank. Central Bank of the Philippines. Again, this is an era, 60s, 70s, 80s, when central banks always paid back their debt. There were no sovereign defaults in these eras. He lended money that was um, uh, loans that were guaranteed by the World Bank and the IMF, lower interest rate, but he wouldn't have to worry about them getting paid back. He did a lot of trade finance. Um, he, they had a large business in moving banknotes around the world and in gold. So he did all these banking activities that were very vital to the lubrication of trade, but it really avoided and minimized the personal risk because he owned 30% of the stock of his bank. He believed in the banking world that he came from, that the banker was responsible for anything that went wrong with the depositors. And he always had incredibly low credit losses. And people could never understand how it was that he made money because he had very low credit losses. He didn't use a lot of leverage. And yet his banks were rather profitable. And I think that combination of having started four different banks and having run them on such a profitable basis and having guided them unscathed through this era of booms and busts and bailouts and having very few credit losses, all those speak to um, putting him up there with any of his peers as a successful I mean, it sounds almost too good to be true, uh, Dan. Uh, a couple of questions here. I mean, are there any scandals associated with his career? Um, and, and where would you be critical of, of him? What, what areas of his life or his business life are open to criticism? Because bankers these days don't have good reputations. I mean, they're not all, of course, Bernie Madoff, but many of them, as you've suggested earlier, are morally quite dodgy. Um, I would say, you know, this book ultimately, and, you know, a tip, so he, he's in 1999, he sold his two banks that he owed to HSBC for $10 billion and walks away himself with $3 billion. But for him, it was a tragedy. And this book is ultimately a tragedy on a few levels. Um, and I'll get to sort of his, his kind of weaknesses or areas where he fell short. Um, one tragedy was that, you know, he got Parkinson's when he was in his early 60s. And basically, at the time of his death, when he was 67, really could not function at the level necessary to um, uh, run this empire that he had built. A second tragedy, he got married later in life. Typically, Syrian men will get married at the age of 28 or 29 to a much younger woman and have several children. Um, he didn't get married until his 40s. He married uh, Lily his wife, Lily Safra, who was also of that age and had her own children from before. And the reason this is important is because, again, in Edmund Safra's world, every business was by definition a family business. Even though its banks were publicly held, um, the idea was that your children carry on the business. And he viewed banking as, you know, this was a trust that he had inherited from his father that he would pass on to his children. But he didn't have his own children. And so he didn't have anybody to bring to the bank. And he couldn't really just wasn't in him to kind of cultivate a successor, to name a CEO to replace him. So he ultimately couldn't figure out a way to have his banks succeed beyond his life, which is why he sold them. Um, and so that is the, I would say that was a kind of weakness and probably a reason, you know, his primarily legacy is philanthropy, because when he died, he left most of his assets to a foundation, which has been giving you know, money away to educational and medical research and Jewish causes for the last 20-something years. But he sold his banks in 1999, 
to HSBC for cash. And that was the end of his banking career. And that was the end of Edmund Safra as a banker himself. Finally, uh, Daniel, it's an interesting story. He represents this man, as you say, his end of his life was rather sad. He got sick early, got Parkinson's. Um, he sold his banks. But it, he represents a lost world, the world of these. Uh, they weren't global, but international bankers from the ex-Ottoman Empire, the world of Aleppo, which is destroyed now through the Syrian civil war, through the Jews outside Israel of the Middle East. What would you like us to remember about the world that Safra represents? Well, actually, you know, he was quite global. His banks did have operations stretching to Asia. You know, yeah, he spoke seven languages. That he's a sort of, he's a global figure in a pre-global age. Yes. Um, you know, the world was globalizing and he helped abet it. I think there is a, um, you know, he spoke seven languages. He had this kind of formality, you know, always wear a, you know, blue suit that was from a certain tailor in Milan, uh, a formality in the way he addressed people. Uh, you look at the letters, the way they um, regarded customer service. You know, these are like ideas from the 19th and 20th century. Um, the concept of the kind of noblesse oblige that he and his family had towards um, supporting uh, their community, and particularly the, the global Jewish community. Um, yeah, as you note, a lot of the worlds that I described are lost and literally don't exist anymore. And that is, you know, part of what I'm hoping to illuminate is that we uh, remember Aleppo and Beirut not as just places of ruin, but of places that had this very vibrant uh, life that, that people still refer to and that uh, kind of spawned a great deal of uh, creativity. And I think, you know, also quaint is his notion of what the point of finance was and what the point of banking was. It was a, at some level, a very defensive um, view, which is, you know, if you live in a world where you have to flee, where you always have to have a suitcase packed because you might leave, you know, your dignity it rests on having uh, some access to cash and knowing that it's safe in um, having a place where you could pray and be secure in your body and secure in re your religion. These are not things that people in America sort of worry about. This is These are things that lots of people in the 20th century had to worry about and confront. So um, I think his, you know, the role that he played in not just, you know, making a lot of money for himself, which he did, uh, providing capital to others, but his banks were in some way a vehicle um, for, you know, helping a fair amount of people preserve their dignity, find places to be and places to be secure in a world of displacement. I suspect he would have been very um, perplexed and suspicious of cryptocurrency. I would imagine. Yes, he was not, you know, he didn't, he was not enamored. He didn't really like the stock market. I mean, he had obviously the stock of his own company, which he owned a lot, but he didn't have like a huge portfolio of other stocks. He didn't like, his bank was very late to offer his private banking customers uh, mutual funds and things like that because they could go down and he didn't want, he felt responsible if the market fell 10 or 15%. Um, Republic Bank never had much of a, what we would call a Wall Street business, like, you know, underwriting and proprietary trading. It just wasn't, you know, that was not, it was sort of, those were 
in the 80s and the go-go era, the 80s and the 90s, that's where a lot of money was being made. But to him, that was alien. Well, that's an interesting story. Congratulations on the book, Daniel, uh, A Banker's Journey, uh, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Financial Empire, a world that no longer exists, a fascinating character, a romantic character from the Middle East and past. Uh, what other books would you suggest? I'm assuming you've read the, the Morgenthau book, which is good. Yeah. <clears throat> I haven't read the Morgenthau book. Um, it's a thousand pages. I've you probably need a few I'm weeks to read it. I think this... Um, this idea of, you know, when we see books like this or the Morgenthau book or even the Sassoon's, that there's something kind of quaint about this notion of a connection between, you know, business, multi-generational business and service and public service. Um, and it seems very old world, but it's worth recollecting that Morgenthau was the, uh, you know, DA of like, New York City until just a few years ago. I My first job in New York was covering uh, the courts downtown for Bloomberg, where he was the DA. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we tend to, like, I think, historicize um, these families and their businesses, but they're actually very much with us today. Yeah, well, presumably had uh, had Safra had kids, maybe they would have ended up uh, in public service. It's possible. But these people, you know... I think we're born and bred to be bankers. Um, it was sort of fed into them to their youth. His two younger brothers, again, built this very large bank in Brazil, and their children are all in the banking and financial um, management industry.